Saddle up your horse. Put on your seatbelt. We'll be fine. I intentionally shortened this sermon because I wanted to accommodate both our time with David and Elizabeth and for David uh, to present Poema Publications uh, to us. And again, so glad to have you. Turn with me to Romans 8, and I would just keep that open. Imagine a scene so scary that you would dread envisioning it. A father and his children, son in one hand, daughter in the other, hiking somewhere out in the American West, when all of a sudden one of the children spots a mountain lion high up in a tree above them, and as the child shouts, Dad, look, a mountain lion. The big cat jumps from the tree right at the father, no time to react except to get his hands up in defensive posture as the mountain lion is falling. A holy terror, a whirling dervish of claws and fangs with only a second to react. But the father has a knife and instinctively is able to grab it out of its sheath and point it upward as the lion lunges and lands on top of him. The kids scatter, but the father engages the cougar with only his hands in his knife in what we would call a life and death fight. It is bloody battle with the mad cat snarling, its forelimbs a whirling dervish of razor sharp claws. But dad landed true with his first instinctive thrust of the blade. His children and wife are on his mind. He knows what is at stake. His life, their life, it is kill or be killed. He must kill the cat or the cat will kill him. It was the great English Puritan John Owen who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In fact, James I. Packer, what we know, whom we know is J.I. Packer, has a little book about 18 words. And mortification is one of those 18 words, the most important words, he says, that you'll ever need to know. And so in Owen's phrase, be killing sin or sin will be killing you, there's no ambivalence in that statement. There's no middle ground. And the Apostle Paul has said as much in his magisterial letter to the church at Rome. And think about this just for a moment. Can you say of sin what Paul said? Or have you become immune to how insidious sin is because you hear it all the time? So can you say of what Paul said, that you must kill it or it will be killing you? Children, just for a moment, I want you to understand something. This is a takeaway for this message this morning. There is nothing so dangerous for your soul as sin. And by that, I don't mean sin out there, but I mean sin inside here. Nothing 
something so dangerous as sin inside you cannot be toyed with like a kitten that's playing with a ball of string or a cat that's playing with a mouse or maybe you with a plate of broccoli and mom and dad are trying to get you to take just three more bites. We had a daughter that did that with peas. And you know how it is when you don't want to eat something and you're kind of like moving it around. You can't do that with sin. I asked Brother Eric to read much of chapter 8 to supply the context of Paul's great work here. Charles Hodge asserts that by the end of Romans 7, Paul's theology in this book is already established. Don't complicate it. Let me give you two basic points. Number one, first, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus apart from the works of the law. And to be sure, that salvation is unto a life that looks like obedience to the law and the fruit of good works. And we are saved from the condemning power of the law. Praise God, that's justification by grace through faith in the Son of God. And this apart from, the, from, from works faith, though, is a faith that's vitally connected to the Son, to his life and death and resurrection. To him, as he says in John 14, the one who is the way and the truth and the life. To him who is our prophet, priest, and king. He is, as we hear in the very first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, our only hope in life and in death. And if you hear the sound of my voice this morning, that's true of you. But second, because we're saved from sin, we can no longer remain in it, abide with it, stuck in neutral. But we are to live lives of this continual repentance. The very first of Martin Luther's 95 theses that was nailed to the church door at Wharton, whatever you call it. I can't remember. <laughs> Can someone help me with that? Thank you so much. And so because we're saved from sin, we can no longer remain in it, abide with it, stuck in neutral, but we must live lives of continual repentance. We begin the Christian life that way. We continue the Christian life in that manner, and that should accompany our final day, our final breath, where we're mortifying the deeds of the flesh and abiding in Christ the true vine. Hasn't Paul asked in Romans 6 verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, in the next four weeks, my purpose is to take Romans 8, 12 through 14, just three verses, and lay out for us the dimensions of mortification or what we call the mortification of sin. Kids, I want to acknowledge mortification is a big word, right? Cat, dog, apple, bat. Those are small words. Mortification is a big word. And I'm going to help you with that in a moment. But today we're going to look at the necessity of mortification, answering the question, why do we need this? Why must we pay attention to it? Why must we apply ourselves to this work? And then in the next three weeks, in turn, the means, the nature, and the reward, or even better, the promise 
of mortification of sin. In fact, it's all found in integrally right there in verse 13. It's all there. Each sermon is going to build upon the previous message of mess or messages. And we find the heart of our subject there in verse 13. Look at it with me for a moment. Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. There is the necessity of mortification. But if by the Spirit, there's the means, you put to death the deeds of the body, there's the nature of it, you will live, there's the promise. Necessity means nature promise. Justin Taylor summarizes John Owen's three foundational principles for the mortification of sin as follows. And listen to this. Be, be, be really focused on this, and if you're taking it, it's very helpful. Number one, he says, first, believers who are free from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their daily work to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Second, only the Holy Spirit is sufficient for this work. And third, the life, vigor, and comfort of the believer's life depends much upon this work of mortifying sin. All right? It's to do your daily work to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Secondly, only by the Spirit are you sufficient to do it. And third, the life, vigor, and comfort of the believer's life depends much upon this work of mortifying sin. So here's my three-part question for you this morning. There are times when, as we open the Word of God, right, we, it's comforting. In fact, we say that part of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the what? Comfortable. So here's my question. Are you making it your daily work to kill the sin that remains in you? And if so, are you doing this with reliance not upon your own gifts, graces, strengths, talents, intellect, but upon the Holy Spirit? And have you made the connection now between this daily work of mortifying sin and the joy, the power, and the comfort that you have as a believer who's united by faith in Jesus Christ. So number one, are you making mortification of sin your daily work? Number two, are you doing it by the help and the power of the Holy Spirit? And number three, have you made the connection, cause and effect, that if you're shriveling up in your Christian life, that it may be, it just might be, that the source of that is you failed to take Paul's counsel, his words here in Romans 8, 13, to daily be putting to death the sin that resides in you. So here's my outline briefly this morning. Number one is that mortification of sin is necessary in the life of every believer. I'm not going to keep repeating mortification of sin, so... It's necessary, number one, in the life of believer, of every believer. Number two, it's necessary because sin is so heinous. In other words, it's so awful. It's so terrible. It's so to be feared. It's so to be repelled, to be resisted. And then thirdly, mortification of sin is necessary because death 
is the result where sin has life. Mortification of sin is necessary because death is the result when sin has life. Now, let me caution you. Resist the temptation to think of how your mate next to you or your friend behind you or your son and daughter in front of you needs to mortify a particular sin. If you'll notice in the text, it doesn't say if by the Spirit you are putting to death the sin that resides in your brother or sister or husband or wife. You got that. This is to be applied principally to ourselves. It's my anger this morning as I preach this, not your anger. It's my lust, not your lust, that must be my focus of living out Romans 8, 13. Okay, now, number one, mortification of sin is necessary in the life of every believer. You might say that's the scope. So a simple question, what is mortification? And kids, we surely are sympathetic if you say, I have no idea what mortification is. So mortification is the killing of something or someone. When mom and dad take a fly swatter and kill a fly, they have mortified They have put to death that buzzing fly. If you have been to a funeral, to a mortuary, that is where dead people are kept before they are buried. If you have heard someone say they have a mortal fear of something like heights, spiders, snakes, roaches, they mean that they are afraid they might die if they even encounter one. All right, that's why in my house, I'm tasked with killing all creatures that don't have a title to the mortgage. Okay, now, (laughs) it's mine alone. Do you profess faith in Jesus Christ? If you did, you signed up for a life of killing, of mortification. You enlisted in the army of King Jesus, and you are sworn to fight and kill your own indwelling sin all the days that God gives you on this earth. We'll see this more, particularly in two weeks, but we're not talking about the complete eradication of all your indwelling sin. That's not the point. Because even the best saints on their deathbed are well aware and confess the remaining sin that dwells in them. But now praise him. You have two things going for you if you're a Christian. Number one, you have a new nature. And number two, you have the help of the Holy Spirit. Never forget that. And if in Acts 2, as Sinclair Ferguson says, is the inaugural outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it is Romans 8, where if you look from 7, from chapters 1 through 7, you might see the Spirit mentioned four to six times. In the first 30 verses of Romans 8, I think you find the Spirit, as in the Spirit of God, 20 to 22 times. Praise God, you have a new nature. You have the help, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. So you're not unchanged. You are, as Paul says, a new creation if you're in Christ. And you're not alone. In Christ you serve one who has said, As he said to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And behold, at the end of Matthew 28, 20, behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. 
And next week, we're going to take a look at the means of mortification. When we look at those three powerful, all-important and telling words, and by the way, three words have precedence for being powerful. I love you. And so when you see, by the Spirit, don't gloss over that. Powerful, all-important telling. They communicate the way you and I, as his blood-bought saints, will fight in dwelling sin, the sins that so easily entangle you and entangle us. And I want to say this. If you think, I know I'm not a Christian, I'm not sure I'm a Christian, this is still applicable to you. You must understand that sin is your mortal enemy. And to fail to do that is to risk eternal loss, danger, hell. When Paul writes to the church at Rome, he includes every believer in the scope of his teaching. No one is excluded. You see that. Though Paul lists many saints by name, I think some 26 in chapter 16 as he's concluding his letter, yet none are singled out here for the work of mortification. Could you imagine if he said, um, you except for Priscilla and Aquila who have no need of mortification, every one of you except with those two names, you put to death the deeds of the body, that that's not what he's saying. It's a crucial aspect of our pursuit of holiness. There's putting to death of sin, and then there's mortification, and then what we call vivification. That is the life in the spirit. And it's true for each and every saint. That was true then, it's true in our own day. And I'd like to confess that sometimes I have too often used mothers with young children for sermon application and illustrations. And if I've ever offended you for doing that, forgive me. But it is an acknowledgement of the particular stress and unending work that mothers with young children have. And so this work then is true for mothers, mothers with young children, women with no children, older men, younger men, you name it. This work is a work for every believer, male and female, young and old, immature or mature. And the enemy is not just out there, and that's why moms and dads, you cannot build fences big enough to fully protect the hearts of your children Do not be deceived. The greatest enemy and threat to your children is what lies inside. The enemy's not just out there. As in the devil, it's closer at hand. Dr. Kelly Kapich expresses it this way. He says, one of the most frightening truths that Owen wants the believer to recognize is that your enemy is not only upon you, but is in you also. He adds... Part of understanding the battle against sin is seeing that the enemy, so to speak, is not only external but internal, which is why Christians often have conflicting desires within them. He says, most Christians seem unaware or apathetic about the sin that remains in them, but whether they recognize it or not, there is living coal, as John Owen says, continually in their houses, which, if not properly attended to, will catch their home on fire. 
Well, thirdly, or second, we've seen that the mortification of sin, right? Mortification of sin is for every believer. It's necessary in the life of every believer. But it's necessary, secondly, because sin is so heinous. Have you become immune? Here's a question of application. Have you become immune to the heinousness of sin, to what Pastor Jamie referred to last week as the sinfulness of sin? Sin is so dangerous because death is the fruit of it and the penalty for it. You may not be fearful of much, but you better have this healthy respect for sin. We must not love it. You must hate it. You must not entertain sin, but reject it wholesale. I remember a time I was 11 or 12 years of age. We were in Daytona, Florida at a campground. And separating the campground from private property with livestock was an electrified fence. And somehow I thought that I was far enough away from this fence. You know, and I, I knew it but I was venturing too close to it. I didn't have enough respect for the electricity inside that fence. And all of a sudden, where was I? On the ground. Okay, all right, embarrassed, all right. Have a healthy respect then for sin. We must not enter it, right? We must not love it, but we must hate it. We must not entertain it, but reject it wholesale. Don't befriend sin. Treat it as your mortal enemy. So again, are you killing sin? If not, sin will be killing you. Count on it. You're about to die. There's no in-between. Kill or be killed like the father facing the lion falling out of the tree. There's no margin for error. We cannot say with our killing of sin close enough. There's no slotted connections like when steel erectors take a beam to a column or a beam to a beam and there's a connecting plate with these long holes so that if you don't exactly get it right, it's okay. You've got a slotted connection and you can just call, hey, good enough. Not so with sin. Not at all. No, No margin for error. Be killing sin, Owen says, or sin will be killing you. And his maxim, Owen's maxim, must serve as a mnemonic device daily to remind us of the danger of indwelling sin and the duty to deal with it as part of our union with Christ. In effect, to live requires killing. Sin's not like a video game or an alternate reality or a dream that you wake up from and then you feel this relief that Like sometimes I have, occasionally I'll have these nightmares where I think I've got a calculus exam and it's the spring of 1981 and it's my fourth of final calculus classes. And then I'm so relieved when I wake up and I realize, no, Mark, it's 42 years later. That class is over. You can't improve your grade. There's no more tests to take. Not so with sin. I have to tell myself, you had your last calculus class in the spring of 81. But in contrast, sin is real. This rebellion by us against our creator, our rejection of his, and hear me, very good ways, his very good words, his very good plan in favor of our not so good words, our not so good plans. This is the all too real horror and heinousness 
of sin. Now, GBC kids, I want you to think about something for a minute. I want you to imagine that we have a globe here on this table. And we could spin it. And you, some of you are learning geography. And there's North America and South America. There's Europe and Africa and India and all that. Okay. But imagine a globe where you turn it. And there's this new set of identifying landmarks that correspond to the heinousness or sinfulness of sin. Where each landmass represents the darkness, the sinfulness of sin, how terrible it really, really is. Sin brings death. Sin is, by the shorter catechism question, any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. But it is at its core fundamentally rebellion to our maker and all that he has declared good. It's why Meredith Klein said that Adam's first stewardship in what Eve was to help him for there in the garden in that temple of God whose sole design was to promote the glory of God, was to prevent the intrusion of evil and rebellion. They failed, right? And that's why we're having this discussion even this morning, that our biggest problem to which the cross is the solution is that we have this sinful nature and that the great problem of our life is not out there, but here. Sin is opposition to God. Sin brings death. Sin is any lack of conformity or transgression of the law of God. It's rebellion. But praise God, sin is the reason that Christ Jesus came into the sin-darkened and sin-cursed world. Why? He dwelt or tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory, glory as one who's full of grace and truth, the only begotten of the Father. And so like looking through this perfectly clear ice cube that feels like a magnifying glass to what's on the other side of it. That old apostle John said this in 1 John three eighteen. He said, here it is. Why did the Son of God come? He says the reason, 1 John three eighteen, the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. And who is the devil or what are his works? John says the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Our third and final point. Not only is the mortification of sin necessary for every believer, not only is the mortification of sin necessary because sin is so dark, ugly, and heinous, but the mortification of sin is necessary because death is the result when sin has life. There's so many ways to illustrate this. And often, you know, we talk about that the way we grow grass is to kill, the way we kill weeds is to grow grass, right? It's the life of grass that chokes out the life of the weeds. 
And so Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Mortification is necessary for every saint. Mortification, secondly, is necessary because sin is so heinous. But here's this third aspect to the discussion of just why mortification is so vitally important for us who are sons and daughters of God. We've already touched upon it. And here it is with no surprise. Death, certain death, is the undeniable consequence of not killing sin. It's like saying to someone who cannot swim, if you go in that ocean, if you attempt to swim across this river, you will drown and you will die. Or to a young child, if you touch this pan now, or that cookie sheet, you will be burned. There's no middle ground. Death is the undeniable consequence of not killing sin. Hear the first 11 words of verse 13 again. Let me say them. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And I'd like you to allow me to translate the original language literally, so hear it carefully. The verb is actually you are about. The word to die is actually what we call an in, in, in infinitive. It's simply to die. The verb is you are about. It's what we call inceptive. And so there's two things that's taking place here. We can translate it this way. For if you live after the flesh or according to the flesh, that is the old nature, you are about to die, right? Again, it's simple. If you, as you heard as Pastor Eric read these first 30 verses, there's the spirit and there's the flesh. The spirit gives life and peace. It's the death. It's the flesh that brings death. So there's two things I want us to see about what Paul is saying. That first, this is a conditional statement of the strongest force. Sometimes, parents, we say to our children, if you do this, then this will happen, and we don't follow through on it. We didn't really mean it, or we're weak at follow through. But this is the strongest form or class of conditional statement. If you live a life according to the flesh or after the old nature, rather than the new nature, life in the Spirit, the Spirit who gives life, he says, you will die. And it's preceded by this verb that is inceptive. That is, get ready, this is about to happen. It's like when you say, if you do that, I'm warning you, if you do it, with the strongest sense of prophetic reality, this is going to take place. That's what Paul means here. If you live in a pattern, according to the pattern of the flesh, the old nature rather than the new, you will die. And there's more in view here than simply physical death. All right? And he's saying, get ready. This is about to happen. If you are living after the flesh or old nature, you are getting ready to die. Three points. You know them. The mortification of sin is necessary for every believer. It's necessary because sin is so dark. 
It's necessary because death is the result when sin has life. I hope you're uncomfortable this morning if you're a Christian. What do you need to deal with that you've procrastinated? What have you been too casual about as far as putting death to to sin? What is it that, if you're honest, your best friend, and by best friend, I mean the person that will tell you the most truth about you or your mate, what would they say? I think you need to be more proactive and killing this. Is it anger? Is it lust? Is it, is it an unfaithfulness? Is it prayerlessness? Is it a lack of affection for another brother or sister? Is it a disdain for someone who looks different than you? Is it, is it pride? Is it pride that's like a poisonous, invisible gas that's incredibly deadly, even though it's not very evident? Now, for those of you, just a question for those of you who say, maybe I don't know if I'm a Christian. So how does this letter to an old church 20 centuries ago apply to me? What do I do with it? Your takeaway this morning is that you need to be saved from sin. You need a new nature. You need a new heart. And praise God, that's your problem. All right? And sometimes we state problems without really knowing what the solution is. we've, We've identified the problem, but not the solution. Your solution is John 3.16. It's about a God who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only begotten son, his only son, that whoever would believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. That's good news for your problem. That's more than a Band-Aid. That's a Savior. Okay. You don't need to overthink this. All you need to do is feel your need of him and you run to him and you say, Jesus, I have a heart of sin and I need a new one. It's stone cold hard. Would you take it out and would you give me a new one? Would you do what your word says you can do? Would you do what every pastor at Grace Baptist Church Taylor's has said? Just ask. He said he'll never turn away anyone who comes to him. That's great news. Because you, like every Christian, will need to kill sin. Or sin will kill you.